You're listening to the Raw at 90 podcast, and I'm MC Flux. My selector good, my selector wise. Are you been? Hello and welcome to Raw, the night is rave podcast with me, Tom Latcham. Today's guest has lived quite the life, and that's putting it mildly. In the 1990s, Flux was one of Jungle's top MCs, and as the mic man for the eminent label Moving Shadow, he's travelled the world performing to huge numbers of ravers. But at the same time, he was living a double life as one of the South Coast's top drug dealers and football hooligan as well. And he admits living a life of extreme violence, uh, but having struggled with drug addiction and spells in prison, he's turned his life around by working with uh, ex-offenders to keep helping them on the straight and narrow. Uh, he's written a book called Dirty. This is it here. Uh, and uh, it's one of the most jaw-dropping books about rave music that's ever been written. Uh, and he's joined us now to talk about it. Um, hello, Carl. How are you doing? I'm not doing too bad. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm all right, thanks. Do you want to be called Carl because your name's Carl Thomas or Flux? What soon? <laughs> that's actually quite funny, actually, because it's like I have three names... A lot of people know me as Rodney. Um, when I was christened Carl, obviously, and there's MC Flux, so Carl will do nicely. Carl will do nicely. There you go, Carl. Okay, well, look, this is a podcast. And obviously, I've introduced you uh, and in terms of giving a flavour about what your book is all about. But this is a podcast about the 90s rave scene. Sounds like you had quite an interesting decade. <laughs> Sounds like an understatement there. <laughs> um, yeah, um, absolutely. I've had a very interesting... Decades, yes, um, to put it mildly. So, mm. but you, when you went to your first ever rave, because you were you were a raver first, and you went to you know raves in the illegal raves pre nineteen nineties, you know, in the, in the late eighties, didn't you? Um, I wonder if if you, when you first went to your first ever rave back in the late eighties, uh, whether you could have ever <laughs> predicted quite how interesting <laughs> the subsequent uh, eleven or twelve years would have been. Christ. Um, do you know, if my um, partner in crime was here, um, Pete Nice, he would have pulled it all into one segment and said, how long you got? But yeah, I, I would have never predicted um, the moment we started raving to doing this now and what would have happened and the context, what gone on and went on in my life to know that, because um, so much happened um from starting to rave and like jumping up and down and doing so much ease and drugs and acting like a real rave, raveaholic to know that, hey, I could be behind the other side performing and in front of like hundreds to thousands to hundreds of thousands of people. And the rest, of course. Yes, of course, um, yeah. So what was the, the, so good about the decade? As a raver now, not as necessarily as an MC, as a raver, what was so good uh, about, the, about that decade? <laughs> So many people can got their own um, ideas of, and and it's rightly so, their own input of why they think that decade was sticks out the most. It's because it was fresh, because no one else has ever done it, and we were the first. And being British, it's it's a it's a massive thing. It's a massive thing, but it it's because it's the way it happened. It it was just the feel of it. It was the understanding. It's like unpredictable nature of this is going to happen where is it going to happen where are we going to go what's next it's that feel of it and to be part of that movement it was just like um it's it was mind-blowing 
It seems to me, through all of the things that you have written about in your book, and that goes for raving, it goes for performing and emceeing, it goes for the drugs, it goes for the violence, you seem like someone who thrives on unpredictability. Is that fair? <laughs> it's all sauce. Um, yeah, I, I think you probably got it down, at, got it down to a T. Um, definitely. What is it about unpredictability that, that, that you, I, I, I you enjoy I, I, so much? I wouldn't exactly say unpredictability. I, do you know, um, okay, uh, a lot of people ask me this question, and to put it down into, into segments, it's basically attention. And I guess it's craving attention. And are you from a certain young age? I mean, out of five, I was my mum's favourite from a very young age. And I knew how to manipulate her from a very young age to get what I wanted to show her love, to show her that what I wanted. And I guess the attention always followed me from a very young age into what I am now, what, what it led, led me into, whether it was like from women, whether it was from playing the fool, whether it's from like being the first to say, I will do that, whether it's playing the, jo the joker in the pack. Whatever it was, I done it because I used the attention. And it, this even sounded sounding strange I even like the tension if someone's speaking bad about me and thinking do you know you've got time to speak about me because I've got no time to speak about you and I love the fact that people are talking about me don't know why but I used to I used to crave that that you got time to speak about me I must be one hell of a person because I ain't got the time to speak about you <laughs> And that's what it was. Really. So it's it's led to, to a lot a lot of positivity in your life that that sort of craving of attention, uh, but it's also led to a lot of negativity too. I like to think so, and I think yeah, again you, you asked some excellent questions. Of course, I think it's positive now, but out of that out of that positivity, what I thought was then come of a lot of knockbacks and a lot of negative things happened through them knockbacks. And, um, yeah, um, at the beginning, it was, it was the unknowing. And when you're doing anything when you're not unknowing, it's like being an entrepreneur, you can only keep trying, right? Keep trying. And one day you're going to get it right. And I guess <laughs> I was keep knocking and keep knocking and I got what I was looking for. And um, I used that, um, the negative facts when it did happen in, into a positive Again. Well, that's good. I mean, we're going to talk about that later on and how yeah. that did turn into a positive. But uh, with all of the positivity around the 90s rave scene, and, and this podcast does celebrate heck a lot of that positivity. You know, there are some interviews that we do that are wholly about positivity. But there was a dark side, wasn't there, to the 90s rave scene? And, and uh, you know, we don't talk a huge amount about it, but it is important to acknowledge. And you were you were at times right at the heart of that. Yeah. Um, there was so much through the 90s the amount of drugs that was in the raves, the amount of drugs was in the raves because <laughs> we were in the raves. <laughs> so this was 18 and hoping... But not coincidental. <laughs> not coincidental. And a lot of people, I mean, you know, I, I come from a football background as well. And you've got to understand, when, when this whole rave scene came together and then we started to go to raves... And then you're looking at, and, it, and it's exactly how some films have got it. And people who don't understand it won't get it. But I've got it. Like, we come to a rave and you'd be looking at, bloody hell, some good, tasty films there. Who's running this? You've got West Ham over there. You've got Tottenham over there. You've got a bit, you've got a bit of, you've got a bit of QPR over there. You've got Luton over there. 
got Brett Palace over there. You got Portsmouth six five seven crew over there. What the hell's going on? And it was just straight away to a football person like me. I noticed that. But what was the mind blowing thing is that these firms were not having it. There was no. There was no. There was no animosity. I mean, you've seen West Ham, Millwall, Tottenham in the same place. And it was what it saw, what you heard on films. You were seeing these firms in one place. And if you weren't into football, you didn't know about it, then you would have no idea what is going on. But to people like myself who were into football and we fit, we knew exactly what was going on. You know, you know, before we were getting off our heads, we're talking about, God, are we going to have a tear up tonight or not? Because <laughs> I don't know. I thought, nah, nah, we're all right, we're all right, we're all right, we're all right. Have a couple of these and we'll be fine. <laughs> and we was. And then we'll be talking. I remember a time I was, I was in Birmingham and um, I was with all these Zulus, Birmingham Zulus, big firm of them. And I'm just like, I'm talking to one of the top, top guys. And one of them was named Ginger. And like, um, he's talking about football and having it and all that. I'm talking about my club. And all of a sudden the drugs come <laughs> Sorry to be so. <laughs> it's it's fine. That's what happens. And, and it was just like drug talk, and it was all coming together because, you know, the, the people up north do not like the people down south, but because of this rave scene, it was just breaking down all social platforms, and it was dissecting, dissecting it bit by bit by bit, and a lot of these people, and a lot of people, and ravers and writers, so do not understand what it done, because during the era of, of football violence it was nasty. You got caught out. Some people, you wouldn't be here today. Or you had marks to know that you were into football violence. And this is what the race team done. It broke down a lot of social barriers. Not just race, colour and creed. It just, talk about, you were allowed to go areas where you wasn't allowed before. Uh, well, there's so much to unpack here with MC Flux, aka Carl Thomas. Uh, so we're going to do that over the course of this podcast. There's going to be some highs, there's going to be some lows, but it's going to be a fascinating chat. If you'd like to get in touch with us, by the way, you can do. There's an email address, hello at the 90s roadpodcast.co.uk. If you want to check out our social media channels, we're on all of them, uh, you name them, we're on them. Twitter, Instagram uh, and Facebook. Just search for Raw the 90s Rave Podcast and we'll be back very shortly to continue along this journey with MC Flux. It's a fascinating one. Do stay tuned. How you been? Raw 90 podcast. This is MC Flux. <clears throat> so this is the 90s Raid podcast. Raw, you're listening to or watching now on YouTube. All of our content going to be filmed and put on YouTube. My name's Tom Latcham. I'm the presenter and I'm here with MC Flux who wants to be known as Carl, so let's call him Carl. Uh, Carl, I'm interested to know, we've talked a little bit uh, earlier on about what you what you got up to in the 90s, but I'm keen to find out how you got to that point by sort of learning a bit more about you as a child and your upbringing and what turned you into the, 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 the performer and the uh, <laughs> dealer and fighter that you, that you later <laughs> became. What was your family life like as a kid? It was good. I, I come from a good family. There was no... I came from a single parent family and uh, I was born in a rough area and... Well, my area is rough, but, um, you know, everything in was... In South just, London. Yeah, but everything was... You know, I, I you know, I was brought up right. You know, I there was nothing we didn't go without. You know, my dad worked hard, my mum worked hard. I got all my brothers and sisters. So everything was good. So there was no... And 
unstableness in my family. So can I ask then how you go from such a settled family with, uh, as you say, you know, not, not at all unsettled, but you did very quickly at a young age, if you read the book, Dirty, uh, we've got it here, um, you were into violence and, and ducking and diving quite early on. Because what, why I, was that? I, I you, like we touched on earlier from a young age, I you had to handle myself. I was, there's this feeling I've got, uh, I don't know what it's called, I have no idea. I've spoken to my partner about it before. I don't know why I'm not scared. I don't know why I don't. Nothing scares you. Do you know, okay, if I break it down quick, do you know when you have a race? And I you, mean, I and haven't you, had a race in quite you, some time, as say, anyone watching this on video do, can tell. They do that and your marks get set, go. Yeah. And you've got that little, that, that, that feeling there. Like, I like that feeling. That's the feeling I like. It's that feeling adrenaline. There. That's it. But it's that adrenaline from that fear factor. Like something's going to happen to me if I don't get myself out of this situation. I like no. I don't want to get myself out of this situation. Then something does happen to me. Is it then f- so be fight it. or flight? Isn't it? And some people are programmed to flight, and some people are programmed to to go towards. Well, yeah, of course. danger. Yeah, of course. I mean, I, I I spoke to my partner about it before. If I would like to be born in the area of life, it'll probably be where there was sword fighting and gladiators, and you tested yourself. <laughs> and I'm not joking. Why not? Because in the end of the day, I wouldn't join army life now. But if there was a sword in my hand and a spit, of, I'll, be, I'll join like there was no tomorrow. Where do I sign up? Because you're testing yourself as a, as a warrior. So if you were, came from a settled family, not violent, without violence, and you found that violence, what did your parents think about it? What did your, your siblings say about it? Were they, how did they feel that you seemed to be going, you, know, you seemed to be so into the idea of fighting? I lied. And I was good at it. Unfortunately, um... There comes a time when, if they didn't know, are you how to lie? And that's probably the saddest, the saddest point that the realty dropped fame for me. Because when you when you go one way, you lose another. And I guess I was losing the <laughs> that innermost ability to be honest and open. And that's what's slipping. So the more lies and the more dishonest I was becoming if I didn't have to be, basically. So when did your family know quite the level of uh, of chicanery that you were into? Well, they, it wasn't when you wrote the book, was it? Well, no, they did, but it's, people want the confession, is not it? I mean, you know, you know when you get these f- programmes, you know, you're cheating. They know you're cheating, but they want the confession. <laughs> Nobody did that, you know, get it, do you? I know you're cheating, but if you know, why do you want a confession? <laughs> Tell me you are. Um, I guess... Um, I guess it was just, um, if they you, they you. And um, some bits were talked about, but if I didn't have to be, then I chose the other way, which is the coward's way, I would say, and lie. It sounds like, uh, from reading your book, you encountered quite a lot of racism as well. Did that play into the fact that you were more inclined to violence no. because there was a, a level of an idea of protection of yourself? No, it's that's the weirdest part. I like the racism. Sorry, the racism. Um, you like, you, know, you like the racism, yes. Yeah, 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 I'm going to ask you why. Because yeah, it was part of that area. It was like, I, that's how I grew up. 
I'm not... Listen, we changed now and things have moved on. And to go back to where and try to make people understand, well, how do you justify it? How do you make that understand that? Why did you like it? And why is it acceptable? You had to be part of that area era to understand what was going on. It was a violent time. It, it was unprecedented time. It was just, it was just, it was just a, 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 a time to, to, to make people understand then w- what you're born into. I mean, we had things like the sus law when I, when I was a kid to be stopped and searched and things were more, it was more easier to say things. We were brought up on comedians like Jim Davison and Bernie Manning and so, and um, Afghanit. So everything was just ease on the air to hear that sort of name calling and things. So going to football was nothing to me and hearing someone saying that to me was nothing to me. You know, I use all the, all, all, all the names for a black man. You can, you can call it, but I like that. I like I like that. I, I like I, I liked it like that. The darker the better for me. Why? Because it was attention. It was well, it, even if it was racist. Yes, it was just like you you got your I'm getting your attention. It's like I'm getting your attention. Your attention and and I was I used to feed of that. It's like I'm tur- you're you're turning yourself away from what you're doing and putting yourself to me. I must be someone incredible for you to turn your attention from yourself to watch me. And all the time I'm thinking, you can't make me do that because all I want is your negative negative attitude. I don't know a positive, I want your negative. I want to piss you off. And even to now, it's like, Carl, you really piss me off. I piss off a lot of people, you know, and I know I'm good at doing it as well because no one pisses me off. But I piss off a lot of people. Like, he really pisses me off. Like, Carl pisses me the hell off. I don't know why I do, but I know I can. And the more I can, the more obnoxious I get. And I've told my partners as well, if I, that's my, I suffer from it now. If I know someone's getting to me, I get really obnoxious. And then I know how to start pissing you off. And I know I can do it. And if I know I can do it, I'll lean into it. Which is sad and silly, but it's how I you and how I grew up, and it's what I used for my defensive mechanisms. You've um, it seems like you've always found some sort of belonging in gangs, and that can be street gangs. Initially, it was around your area when you were ducking and diving. It became the football violence gang around Crystal Palace. In a way, the rave scene. You know, your gang of mates that you all went raving with. You know, you've always found some belonging in in gangs. Why? I think it was exception. Uh, I mean, exception, I guess, to be accepted. I guess probably that's that's, that's the... um, so you're keen to piss people off, but you're also keen to be liked. Yeah, I think you're, you're, I guess you're doing your job now. I guess that's where the insecurities start to come in to, to be accepted, to be liked. And I think that's a behaviour, to be wanted. And if I have to play the clown, which I had done several times, to be accepted, I have fit into that category and probably done things that... Pff, why did I do that? Do you understand what I mean? And I guess that's the side to me I had to work out from a very later on um, in my life to find that why did I play the role of maybe you could say the fool 
or the joker or the first to say yes before thinking about the consequences of my actions. And yeah, so it was a lot to do with exception, uh, exceptions. And is that how you found your way into football violence? I know obviously you were you were in gangs, uh, sort of just, you know, it was areas at the time, wasn't it? But then it became Crystal Palace and you tied your colours to Palace, despite the fact that some of your friends went with other other London clubs, perhaps who had bigger uh, firms. Oh, and... oh yeah, I mean... I, how did you find your way into football I, violence? I, I guess it's the area. I'm, a, I'm South London proud, end of story. I'm one of these guys, where you're from, you support... I, no one can sit here and justify, oh, you know what, I'm from this area and I love this this area. And I'm thinking, why? Don't you love your own area? Don't you love where you're from? Because I'm proud of where I am. It's like I'm proud to be British. I'm proud that this is my country. I'm proud that I'm from South London. I'm proud that I'm from South London, Fort Heath, Croydon. And nothing's going to make me go to another area and support that area doesn't make no sense. I've got no affiliation with that area. But so why am I loving the area? I've got no affiliation But what for? was it about football violence and Crystal Palace and the firm that, that drew you in and appealed? Because you have to, I, I believed at that time that you, you have to test yourself for being a man. You don't have to be the greatest as fighters to test yourself. To know, so you, you can stand your ground and know that, listen, if you're going to come down and take the piss or you're going to act like something... I don't care if there's 100 of you guys or 50 of things. I'm standing my ground to say that you can't do that. Not in this area. Why do you, you care so much? Why I did? Yeah, yeah. Why do why, why you care if someone... I'm playing devil's advocate here, uh, Carl. Like, why do you care if, if, if a firm comes down and takes the piss at Crystal Palace? What does it matter? It, it mattered a lot. It mattered. It was why? But why? I t- why? Because I believe, and it has been said that... If there's you and there's me and there's a couple of other geezers and I'm looking on that line and I'm thinking, he's a good lad. He's just like me. He's sweet as well. And now that we're going to stand our ground and I know that I ain't moving, he ain't moving, he ain't moving. It's nothing better than that feeling. And that's the feeling that I craved on, to know that you can't come to us and know that we're going to have it on our toes you're going to know that, my God, that was a hard day today. I ain't going to think about going down Palace again. And we'll leave you with that feeling. Even if we got smashed there, like, we will make you think about, yeah, yeah, they're all right, they are. There ain't many, many of them, but they're all right. They can hold their own. And when it is going off and you are holding your own and you're, you know, you're having it, can you describe the buzz? It ain't good. It's not good. <laughs> it's not even good. You're not even enjoying it. What's the point? No, no. I mean, but I mean, it's the it's the aftermath. Uh, math, I should say, um, the injuries and the um, what's happened to you and seeing friends being cut open and everything else. It's it's good at the time. Then when you think about it, it's 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 to justify it and to tell that. Oh my God! Look at your face. Mm. This is not good. So how come you're so good looking then? I know how to fight. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you should have told your mates. <laughs> you should have taught them. <laughs> um, no, uh, I guess it's luck. Um, I guess I got a lot to RIP oh, to my mum. Um, why? I I shouldn't be here today. No. Really and truly, there's a lot of luck in my life. 
So, Flux, do you think that you were, at football, you were a bigger target due to being a big black guy? <laughs> Interesting question. There was, throughout England, there's a lot of um, top black lads anyway, and a lot of black... For a lot of people that know, there was a lot of black hooligans anyway. A lot of people yeah, yeah, yeah. just... Well, I, used to, I sometimes would go down Tottenham, uh, which is where I'm based, and, and you knew it was a big game if, if the, 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 the 30 black lads were out because they were very top guys and you were like, okay, well, this is a big game. Well, there you, well, there you go. I mean, in my, in my opinion, the two, there's, two, there's two big black firms, in, 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 to me, in my opinion, again, in, in England, that's Birmingham, Zulus and Tottenham. And together they just look awesome. So, my point being, um, being a black hooligan at that time, it was just, um, and there wasn't really many at Palace, even though it's a black area, there wasn't really many at Palace, but there was, you know, I, I just I just stand out. And I remember the writer Peter told me, because he worked at BT, and we played Millwall one particular game, and, um, you know, we had a little scuffle with them, a little thing. You know, I gave it all the big mouth in my head. I had, I had this Mac on, this Burberry Mac, and my hair was like in a spider. And I was you know, like this, giving it to them. And my mate went to work and they were all like frothing from the mouth. And we all got, yeah, there's this black guy giving it all the mouth at Palace, blah, 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 blah. And it was me. <laughs> it was this place. That's my mate. He goes, you're choking. He goes, yeah. So yeah, they, they, yeah, again, there was, there was, um, a couple of um, incidents where... So you did stand out and you oh, became yeah, something I mean, of a target. Yeah, again, we went to Middlesbrough um, once. Um, we had, with their, with their, like, um, getting unsavouriness. Anytime we've got, we're in, like, the northwest, northwest or northeast, whether it be Sunderland, whether it be um, Newcastle, whether it be Stockport, whether it be Oldham, whether it be any of those places, as a black guy, you've got their attention. Whether it be name calling or not. And were you never put off by the rampant racism that does exist in football, and particularly in football violence, and, in fact, including some of your own firm? No. Some of whom were linked to Combat 18? Yeah, no, because from a young age, I grew up. we grew up with it. That's what we grew up around. But how can you square standing side by side with a man who, or, or men, whatever, but there was one in particular, I think, who, because of your, the colour of your skin, would like you deported involuntarily, or perhaps even worse? Because we share the same values. I, I, I you know, I'm not into politics, still I'm not into politics now, but it doesn't mean that you can't fight side, side by side together. But he, hate, he hates you because you're born black. Well, that's his thing. I hate him because he was probably who he is, but didn't bother me as long as we stood toe to toe and handled our business together. That's all, I was, that's all I'm concerned with. His political views of action doesn't bother me. At that time when he's needed, can he stand up and be counted on? And that any particular person who had those views, when it come to go to war, which it was, as long as he carries those views as you need to stand up, be counted. After that, if you want to become a politician and disagree, then I haven't got no time for it, so you can go do that with someone else. 
So that's what I was just interested in. And in terms of the the football stuff, and we're we're not going to continue talking about this that much more. But I'm interested to 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 find out your mindset around it. There are no there are often people innocent victims caught up in this, right? So sh- people who have their pubs smashed up. There are you know well things like that. Did you did you never think? Oh, I feel a bit bad about doing this, some of this stuff. Could, look, people call it collateral war. Like I said, I'm not into politics. But you wouldn't hear when there's countries going to war and, and it's been passed by, you know, by the government. Innocent people get caught up. But they don't get persecuted, do they? So why, okay, when we're doing something against the law, like we're having a fight on the roads, and there are innocent people about, and all of a sudden it's a massive deal. I mean, yes, it's not nice to see, but this is this is this is what I'm going to keep thinking about, and it's going to get into more. I believe something always gets made bigger than what it is, and they always say, "Oh, this innocent person got hurt," and they probably got got fell over, and it said I got punched in the face because they want to make it sound as worse than what it is. They don't. They ain't going to side with someone who's been the persecutor. They ain't going to make them sound good. And what about some a publican who's had his pub smashed up and his livelihood ruined? Um, what did livelihood never get ruined? Because he insured up to hell. I mean, he probably wanted to get smashed up. Smashed up, up, up. No, listen, I'm not going to justify nothing here. What i done and what I was into was wrong and it was my actions and it's what I was into. So be it if there was innocent bystanders who got involved or got caught up in it, then... It happened at the time, but it was part of what I did and part of life at that time. And there's no justification behind it. And I'm going to sit there and, and try and make it sound good because it wasn't. It was just part of what I was into and what I chose and what I believed. And in terms of your violence, you have at times, you write, in this, you write this in your book, that you have at times used knives, you've used hammers, etc. Did you ever not worry that you might kill someone? <laughs> Because, I mean, that is the very real uh, result of using a knife or using a, a hammer on somebody, isn't it? Is the ultimately, you, you don't control whether someone might die. Um, yeah. Um, I guess it's, I guess it's nature that um, when there has been weapons involved in anything unsavory, what has gone on in my life, that... Has things happened to what shouldn't have happened, of course. But um, I guess that's the way it has been, and that's the way. It okay. Um, and what were the police like back in those periods of time, the late 80s and the early 90s? And have they changed over the years at all? Well, it's got it more institutionalised, so it's hard, it's more harder to see. Listen, um, it was easier back in our day. It's hard. I, I, I feel sorry for our kids now. You can't see the institutionalized stuff or the politics behind it now. You have to be very, very paranoid or very clever. But I liked when you saw someone, you know where where he's coming from. I don't like you because I think you're blah, 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 blah. I like it like that. Because you, where you stood. Now, how do you... You can have a drink with someone and laugh and joke with them. And the minute you, your back's turned, you know what you're probably going to hear. But then days, you knew who was who. Because no one, 
you still had your freedom of speech then, didn't you? You used to have your speaker's corners. Back in the day in London, people used to speak how they wanted to. I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm glad that things... You are... prefer things are said openly rather than... I believe, I believe in freedom of speech, but I believe in there is a change. But I'm not into politics at all, so it's going to be hard for me to, to understand, to, to explain what I mean. But what I'm just trying to say is there's nothing wrong with someone expressing the way they feel, and I don't see why they have to be persecuted if they do express themselves the way they feel. And, and in terms of growing up in South London, how much has changed for young working class black men in South London? Is it the same shit, different age, or, or, no, or is it more nothing. brutal? Is it? It's, it's, listen, where I'm from, well, where I was from is, it's the U-Ghetto of South London now. The surrounding areas of Croydon is the U-Ghetto now. It's, it's chocolate, 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 chocolate. It's a very black area now. It's hard, it's, it's, it's gritty, it's grimy, it's everything you, you say is, that's what my area is now. It's like they moved everybody from more inner city, from Stretton, Brixton, Kennington, Elephant Castle, who are people of colour, down into Croydon now, and mixed them up with the old Croydon people, and, and it's just, just a nice, chocolate, rough feeling, gritty area. And for kids now, it's, it's a very dicey area to um is it is it tougher than it was in your time Um, do you think yeah i do believe so yeah for a young person of color in an urban place yes i in my opinion yes interesting well listen that is a a little bit about uh mc flux and how he sort of is is growing up years his earlier years uh, and his violence we're going to talk next about raves and how he got into raving and that sort of thing but you're listening to raw the 90s rave podcast if you want to get in touch you can email us hello at the 90s rave podcast or head to our social media if you are listening on audio we're on youtube if you are on youtube hello uh it's all going to be on youtube from here on in so if you are listening audio wise and you want to see a bit of what's going on you can head over to youtube and do that this is MC Flux, and you're listening to the Raw 19 podcast. Good night, selector. Good night, selector. Wise, are you mean? Well, we hope you're enjoying today's episode of Raw. But now's where we ask you, inevitably, for your help to keep this project rolling on. We're a tight-knit team of four working part-time for free, taking no wages out of this project to create this podcast. And it's quite a serious undertaking alongside our normal day jobs. Hopefully you can see from our progression from audio to video in the few months since we started this podcast that, thanks to your ongoing donations, we've managed to improve our equipment. And I'm pleased to say your generosity means this podcast now washes its own face in terms of costs, which is absolutely great news. And thank you, thank you, thank you so much to any of you who've donated. Uh, we've got big, big plans for the future, but we aren't going to be able to do it without your support. So if you want us to keep making Raw, you're going to need to keep on funding Raw. And that will help with the cost of renting or buying recording kit and paying expenses to travel the country and interview more of your favourite rave artists from the 90s. So if you can spare anything at all, no matter how big or how small, you can do so at gofundme.com forward slash the 90s rave podcast. That URL again is gofundme.com forward slash the 90s rave podcast. And if you're not in a position to donate, because we know it's a tough time for everybody, you can instead help by subscribing and sharing our content on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You just need to search for Raw, the 90s rave podcast. Go and do that now, please. Massive love and respect to each and every one of you. Hope you're enjoying it. 
This is uh, Raw, the 90s Raid podcast. My name's Tom Latcham. This is MC Flux. We've heard a bit about his upbringing, but I want to know how he got into raving because he became one of the most eminent jungle MCs of the 90s. And he's still at it a little bit, uh, although no one is, frankly, at the moment because of COVID. No, 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 no. no. We'll talk about that later, but it's a bit a grim time for raves, frankly. Um, but you grew up, didn't you, on sound systems in South London. That was how you, you, you got into it. You created some long-standing bonds with some of the guys that you ended up going raving. Um, how much influence did those sound systems have on the later rave scenes? Oh, where did you start everything? Without sound system, we wouldn't be here having this interview now. It all, it all comes down to sound system, in my opinion, for British uh, music, especially this dance music, which we're celebrating and we're always celebrating now. It comes down to us. It comes down to sound system, the way it's, the way you hear it, how it's made, how it's built, the actual performer from the operator selector, from the MC. It's 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 got that influence of what the rave is now. All the ingredients are there. It's just us dissecting it from the sound days. And um, being in sound system from where we are at a young age, I was a box boy. And, you know... Tell us, t- for those who don't know about sound oh, systems, bo- what's a box boy? A box boy was someone who's... <laughs> what's like a sleeve, really? <laughs> Picked up the box, <laughs> carried it into... Hired, the, hired help. And it was yeah, Hired big, heavy. Yeah, I'm talking about... I'm talking about these little square boxes. I'm talking about a big four-phase box. You, you picked up and you're probably carrying upstairs. You got your marks and everything else. And I, you know, I've done it for a sound called Ceradix. And it, there were big sound in our area, but there wasn't a major full sound in the country, or or the or or whatever. But there were big enough sound, and they gave us. Well, they certainly influenced us to make our own sound, which we did, and we done it really good. We done it really good. We made a Ute man, Ute man sound called Young Senator. Um, various amounts of us, um, Pete Nice and other people uh, came together. We came together as a collective, put a sound together. We cut dub plates, personalised um, from various artists in, in the country. We put together, we built our own speakers. So there was a lot of money and a lot of finance what went into building our sound. And we had an authentic, authentic way of doing it. And we'd done it good. For two years, we had it for, for two years, we hit it hard. You know, pedal to the metal, hard. we done what we had to do. And we'd done it really good. And... um yeah, we made a lot of noise for what we'd done, for, for the Ute Man sound we had. So to carry that sound system use and to take it into the rave and what the rave became was was everything. Because there was always a bit of the way the way you picked up the mic and you, and you chat over a rave scene thing because you heard that reggae influence through the tune. So, you know, you know a lot of people through sound systems came onto the rave scene, probably probably a good 90%, I'll say. But definitely, definitely. Whether they were like at the sound, whether they were the actual operator or a selector and became a DJ, or whether they were, they were, they were an MC 
and became an MC. As you know, a lot of successful MCs came from big houses and made a big living through being in the race. And three people come to my, my mind straight away, and that will be the guys from Unity, the Unity boys, the Ragged Twins and Navigator. Yo, me not skin up. Yo, me not wrap up. Raw 90s podcast. How you been? So we've we've talked flux about the sound systems that you worked on and how important they were to that very new early rave scene in the late 80s and early 90s. Tell us about your earliest memories of rave music and raves because I know that you you went to some of the very early ones in the in the late 80s, didn't you? Including Sunrise, for instance, famous. Oh, yes. Um, yeah. Biology of the Sunrise is... What were they like? I think we touched on it earlier what the unknowing factor was, the actual knowing that you're just, you know, so we're based in South London, so we went to places like Clapham Common, where there's hundreds and hundreds of people, in a, you know, in a common and outside, and it's like a street party. And, you know, everybody's waiting around a phone box. Well, we, I wasn't, we were just waiting wherever I was waiting, and you hear that sound, and then it'd be a big convoy, the convoy going somewhere and I remember I think it's Peter always has a better memory than me I think we were going to Ipswich I think it's biology and the convoy all the way to Ipswich from South London Clapham Common Ravers to feel the, the, the collaboration another uh, another gang a sort of another gang more than another guy, gang this was like a a, 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 <laughs> a movement a movement <laughs> that's what you End of story. You, you you can't tell people. You, you you I can give my my perception, but you had to be there to know that the movement. It was a movement. Like man goes, yeah, this is a movement thing. You know, this is a movement because it was like convoys. It was like it was like we're migrating to another country <laughs> just to take over. I mean, I've been to football and I've been to like 50,000. This is just like, you're talking about 20,000 moving from one place to another area. And that was just from my area. There ain't ever 20,000 coming from another area. And what was it like being in those big raves, big illegal raves? You know, you're not meant to be there, but there is that movement. The music's amazing. You know, the drugs obviously were okay. new as well. Okay, it's really weird. Because um, I'm going to say this live and direct. I wasn't doing the drugs. Then. I know. Well, you weren't for. You, you did eventually. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> Break it down then. But no, no. We we teetot, What you didn't need it in the early days because nah, it was such a nah, I mean, so amazing. I, I, we, don't get me wrong. There was a lot of people who was like, because like I said, I'm from that football thing. I was like, it's gonna go off in a minute. I'm too scared because I'm I'm seeing the ravers, ravers, and I'm seeing the gangs behind thing thinking, what are they doing here? So I'm still got one eye on that sort of thing. But um, there was nothing going through me. We were just smoking. If that, really? And so when you did do uh, a pill, did you think, oh, that's what I was missing out on? I love you. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing what it'll do, isn't it? I mean, yeah, it, stopped the I mean people fight, it stopped the football violence for a, for a period. And, you know, that was why, right? Because you were all in the field... Off your tits, um, hugging each other. Yeah, I mean, not so much for me, no. I mean, it probably happened with, with the bigger boys and the more established 
um, or it's, but it, uh, it's, I guess when it, when I did indulge, it was wow. Where where have I been? Why wasn't I doing this before? But I'm glad I didn't start then because you know I still got a really good recollection what actually happened during the eighty nine. 88, 89 movement without doing anything. Doing the 90, 91 movement, everything changed then. <laughs> Very quickly. Um, and Abel, how important were drugs for that, that rave scene and, uh, and and the sound and the vibe? Well, everything everything changed. Um, so, so you got 88, 89 where it was just legal and we had to do what we had to do to get to a rave and it was just thousands and thousands of people migrating to different areas. So, you know, you had this law come in and that law come in and it moved to more, not underground, into more um, an air, um, a venue. You had venues. Still big venues, what we do call Was today. It, you, you like the unpredictability of life was it was it slightly less fun when it moved into it did legal because clubs? because because you, we saw we straight away you you were coming from a big field into a Michael Sober Center in actually Tottenham and you're thinking you know it was a big enough place there's still thousands of people there but it was just under a roof and it was going to start at one stage and finish at this time you remember when you was in Bacon eighty eight eighty nine it finished when it finished. Or when the police said it finished. Yeah, it finished when it finished. So um, to know that it was like, had the time to it. And then the drugs changed a little bit more. Even though I, you know, it was still um, experiment times with the drugs and it was still good. It, it changed from someone who was taking it from 88 to someone who was taking it from 1990. So, so when I probably indulged in, you know, taking ecstasy, um, you know, it was like, oh God, why haven't I done this before still? But a lot of my crew was not indulging still. It was just me. I was the first. Like I wasn't everything. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I was the wrong person. You just went, you got to take it. Or, yeah. the, or the right person. You yeah. could view it as. Yeah, you could say that, yeah. And so tell us about the first time you picked up a mic. Uh, I think it was a Jumping Jack Frost set. Yeah. Uh, is that right? Slammers in Gravesend, is it in 1990? Is that correct? Can you remember that moment? Describe the feeling of, uh, of, you know of, what? of being gonna, that host. I'm going to just say this. Like, he won't remember this, you know. He's been told, but he won't remember. Frost. Who, Frost? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he does smoke quite a lot of weed, <laughs> to be fair. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I remember it like it was yesterday. Um just um, seeing a mic and he's asking a particular question to I've got Rizla and stuff and I said yeah you got a mic and he goes yeah or whatever <laughs> and then they, me doing my thing sound system chatting whatever and it sounded good at the time I guess have, you, have you heard it back? it must sound like a load of nonsense <laughs> <laughs> but yeah it, 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 it felt what it was it, it felt good the energy felt good and you are an intention seeker so that yes is... yet, yet again and it just only took one person to say you're really good at doing that aren't you I don't know why and then I thought yeah, am I then yeah and so why did you call yourself Flux where did that come from people get, people get used to giving their nicknames don't they I, I gave myself the nickname 
What does it mean? What is flux? I, I mean, people say you're kind of slicky. You're a bit too slick for me. And I, I used to get that a lot at school because being that, like playing the uh, slick into things, making trouble, you know, I mean, one minute I'm there, the next minute I'm over here. And um, stick like flux, and I heard it. So, you know, I remember, you know, I, used, I had different sort of um, nicknames, but nothing stuck was cool enough for me. So I gave myself that nickname. Ah, so you named yourself Flux. Yeah. And who were the MCs that you looked up to that you felt, you know, they're, they're the guys that I want to emulate? What, you mean in Rave? Yeah, in, rave, mean, in rave. There wasn't... Because... I was one of the f- I was one of the first in the barrier. But if there was MCs on that circuit at the time who I sort of admired, there there was a couple what come to my mind. Definitely Everson Allen from Ratback, hundred percent, who was on that circuit at the time. Who I heard, Top Buzz, um, Mad P, Mad P for what they were doing up north, and we were witnessing. A guy called Cool and Deadly, who was a sort of Groove Riders unofficial MC. He his name was Clive. Very, very um, um underrated MC. And there was Moose at the time. There was Chalky White, he was a different sort of brand of an MC. There was a guy who you're gonna speak to a little bit later when I guess MC MC. Fingers crossed. There was Hardcore General. At that time, who had in the rings, there was Bassman from up north, and there was MC Lenny. So there was these guys around the 1990, 91, who were about who. So, how did you try to differentiate yourselves from them? Did you? Yes, most definitely. How? Most definitely. Um, I've done it my way. What uh, is your way? What's your style? Could you describe your style? My 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 style was when I was with Colin Dell was like I I used to say things like make a body boo, make a body sweat, make a body boo, make a body sweat, make a body boo, make a body go, make a body boo, make a body go, make a body sweat. Doing it, Colin Dell. Doing it, Colin Dell. So I was a bit more skippy. Was some mad p girls me get a liquor thing and me go with a. So he was more of a sort of a a reggae sort of style. I was more yeah, I was more like I'll say something like ain't no stopping us now. Move on, move on, get in the mood. Ain't no stopping us now. Mama say so. I was more skippy. So I used to like um, do a style like that. So I wanted to separate myself from that. You had a little sound system thing, what Moose had, but he was more authenticated, more sitting properly. Everson Allen was precise. He was what made my ears peak up. He was very precise in what he said, very English. And there's one thing what Pete Nice to all four fingers, don't talk like a yardie. Don't talk like you're on sound system. Talk English. So if you're gonna speak, don't Why? say because it's like, yeah, man, me there, you know, I'm big up all the people in, in, in another place. It didn't make no sense. We wasn't in that environment. He goes, yeah, this is going out to all the ravers. Everybody put their hands in the air. Speak clearly so people can understand you. So I sort of took that sort of like good advice. advice. Yeah, speak English. And it was that getting that. So I used to get myself stuck in between. It's talking a bit like from the urban street and 
well, it's all English. I did learn in the end. But um, I think being with a, a particular DJ, Colin Dale, taught me how to refine myself a little bit more as an MC. Okay. And what were your favourite raves uh, of the 90s to play at as an MC and why? Anything in the South Coast. Stearns, without a doubt, will come to my head as R.A.P. Mensa. Dance 91, 92, 93, which is Brighton Centre. Um, a personal favourite called Mantra in Brighton. Used to have Fusion in Bournemouth. Um, for the people from Fusion, I should say. What was it that made a great rave for you to perform at? What were the elements? The crowd. The crowd. The crowd. And, and the South Coast crowd are particularly good? Yeah, um, coming from London... You had a London crowd, but they weren't loud. They weren't loud. You probably had to be more... No, you didn't even have to be more professional. Not in my opinion, no. It, it still wasn't happening for me in London. No matter what Ray was in there, everything was happening outside London. Why it, was that? Was it just competition was, was so it fierce was, in It London? was just... You can you can let yourself off more in London. London was just still had that. It was still going through a transition where it didn't know where what it wanted to be. There was nothing controlling it. It, it was still dark and dingy. It, it, there wasn't enough horns and put your hands in the air. There wasn't there wasn't enough of that going on. Okay. It was more serious. And who were your, who, who your favourite DJs to DJ for? Uh, so MC for, rather? And why? Without a doubt, I'm going to say Colin Dell um, at Skiss FM, because I was his MC, obviously. And, and who else would you enjoy doing? <sighs> There's only two other names that come after that will, will be Fabio and Groove. Why? Because they would they, they are what they are. Except you get what you get and you, what you see. They are the originators, they are the godfathers. And they've been there from day one. And they have set the scene and set the standard from all those years and still doing what they're doing now. It's, it's, it's something what they can only say and they can, it can be told, but someone from the outside it, looking in and seeing how they progress and they have made an impact on my career, yes, of course. But um, it's, it's how they done it. When we without them... This probably scene wouldn't be here now. Is that right? I believe so. Interesting. I, I believe so. You ended up being the MC for Moving Shadow. You got yeah. your Moving Shadow cap on. You can all see there. Uh, anyone who's watching on video. Um, I mean, that's, they were the biggest label at the time. What a what an accolade. At that time, it was... I was caught, I was caught off guard. I was, when it happened, to be approached by the great... Rob Playford, and I say that without him, the great Rob Playford. People don't be known that, I'll say in front of the camera now, the man behind Timeless, behind the great Goldie Timeless album. Without, without Rob Playford, you wouldn't have Goldie, and probably vice versa. And, you know, they wanted that uh, MC to perform on a PA set, and their MC who didn't turn up on that day, his name was MC Picos. Missing, I got arcs. Gutted peakers. 
Yeah. I'm the so new boy in town Peakers. now. <laughs> what did you do to MC Peakers? That's the real question, Flux. <laughs> Peakers, if you, wherever you are, thanks. And just, you, you can't come looking for me now. It's too late. I've got the shadow on me, man. Um, yeah, it was like, is a horse a horse? Do I, will I do what? Yeah, of course. And I done it. And they loved it. And um, two, six weeks after we done, I done that PA, I was told, go and get your passport. We're doing a, we're going to America. I was like, what? Excuse me? Where? Who? Why? How? What colour am I? <laughs> it was just so many different things. I'm going, where? Yeah. It was what like, was it like? Must have been buzzing, man. Because, you know, I've read in a book, you, you're talking about you know, living the life of a, of, of a bit of a celebrity, really. Um, there's bits I tell you about the book, actually. Um, there was an instance when they, they... These guys, the Moving Shadow Boys, and they are my crew, bless them all. They're my, they're my soldiers. They're my fam. They're my cornerstone right now. And... When we went on, I'm from the street. They're 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 middle class urban boys, great boys. Were you teaching them a thing or two? Yeah, but when we went away, we went on a on a on a dark dark <laughs> tour, and these Mexican was this all your fault? Yeah, these Mexican <laughs> these Mexican guys, you these guys were at their depth. So you know there there was a time when they said, "Flux, you can come, but they have to stay there." And I, they say, "What do you mean?" He goes. Yeah, but what what we introduce them to, I don't think they're they're ready for that. And what I introduced me to, I don't think I was ready for that. <laughs> but I, you know, it was like these guys were getting money from drug dealing money. You know, I'm going back to some big mansion houses where there's there was actually filming going on actually, <laughs> but not that kind of filming. <laughs> Sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> I'm serious. I'm serious. What was it like being a you know a minor sort of like a face in, in this scene that you've chosen you've, you've found yourself front and centre of yeah I mean like I said before I mean we, we went all over the place in the States doing our thing I, I remember we were going to Orlando Florida Orlando Florida once and we had um, Bomb Scare and you know we took one of our two bad members there he's a shy guy and you know we're in a lap dance place. And we told... They, we were in there. It was a big deal about us in there. And one of the girls, you, she goes, are you the one who went there? She goes, I give her free lap. She, she was like... Like a goddess. Just all over, Sean. Gave him free, whatever we had to give <laughs> And it was like, yeah. It was... Um, there was things like that. Like so there was things happening to us which I probably wasn't processing which I should have done, because this was happening back in 91, 92. So I'm still thinking, I need to be all over tomorrow. So if I knew what I knew today, then I would have processed it very different from what I did. Because I'm still in party mode. And yeah, I'm not into like, this is a business. I am not processed that improperly yet. I mean, it must have been a, a hectic time for you because 
as we mentioned earlier, you were also dealing drugs and into violence, and we'll talk about that a bit later. But it must have been an absolutely bonkers time for you uh, with so much going on, absolutely hectic. Um, but I, I'm interested to explore a little bit more about the MC. And, and, and in around sort of 96, 7, 8, you sort of saw a change in MCing with the sort of much more of that sort of double rhyme time stuff which is not your uh, which is not your your style okay well, what did you make of that change and did you well, ever the, try the, to well, the double to... time i mean yeah i mean at the time when i started i was a more i was a more quicker mc anyway without the double time like i said before i gave you a little it, a short example when the double timing came in and and those specialized mcs came in The ones who have done it good, done it good. And I'll take my hat off to it now. But it sounds like a butt coming. There's a lot of butts. Because <laughs> there's a lot of them that do it. And I, I still don't even know what they're saying up to now. It's, it probably sounds good to them and their, fat and their two friends, but I don't know what the hell they're saying. And nobody knows what they're saying. But, you know, if that's the norm, that's the norm. And horses for courses. And if it works, it works. Who am I to tell them it's wrong but or not, right? But not for you? No, because... It doesn't make no sense to me. It doesn't make no sense. But it, if it makes sense to people and it's viable and that's what they want, then who am I to tell them no? How did you rate yourself against them? I didn't. I didn't. You don't, you don't, I don't put myself like that or anything like that. Obviously, if you're good at the double timing, you get more attention than someone who doesn't. But that's not how you should look yourself as an MC. And any established MC who's in this business knows that. I can't get intimidated by a double time MC because I do what flux. I'm going to do flux. And people book you for, for flux. Exactly. So, you know. And there's a lot of people who've lost their career by thinking they have to do what they have to do without thinking, do what made you or got you there or what makes you good. And the most perfect example of an MC in this, in this scene is are the ones who are still there now. You don't have to be and do that. You don't have to. Just do you. Because when you do you, People seem to put more attention on yourself. You come from a uh, a background of where well, you look after yourself, and there'd be a polite way to say it, right? And there was a period where jungle and drum and bass got pretty dark, and you referenced some of these raves in your book. Um, what were the darkest and dodgiest raves you performed at? Manchester and Birmingham. <laughs> Why? <laughs> Natch, yeah, going there, yeah, mostly. But there was been a couple of unsavoury ones in London at that time when when Jungle was going through a bad stage. And thank Godness and thank God for Garage House and Garage Music because I believe it saved our music. It was at one stage it was going through. Shit, if I hear any more shootings or fightings or big gang things going on, they're not this this is this is over. This is definitely gonna be over. So when the Gary House and Gary's music came over and, and the urban crowd sort of left us to go to that crowd, it gave us help. It it, it saved us. And drum and bass, the word drum and bass was coming more established.
so uh, you, you talked a little bit about some of the, the, the more hectic raves up in the north, in Manchester, in Birmingham. There's one story talk about a jungle splash in Aston Villa where an MC was almost killed. Who was that? Jungle Splash, I, th- it was, I think it was Roast. Okay. Um, unfortunately, uh, Moose, I, um, if I'm, my recollection is, if my knowledge is um, thinking, it was um, Manchester okay. Boys. Right. Yeah, we went up to the rave, uh, myself, Pete Nice, Groove, the firm, the Internati, the famous INTA. That was your little mob, wasn't it? That was, was the rave mob. It wasn't just a mob, it was a takeover, it was a movement. And that's not that's not me, me downplaying it. That's what it was. We was a movement. We was recognised. We were first. People knew about internetty. And this is without Flux being, using my name, Flux being part of the internetty. We were just a movement of firmer boys from South London supporting our DJ, which was Groove at the time, and whoever was around him. So it would have probably, if it was Fabio, later when it probably became with Bailey, but we were always a movement. But getting back to your question is, yeah, we we done a gig and um, something unsavory happened, something was said on the mic, and these boys reacted in a way where somebody really got like, um, yeah, got hurt, unfortunately. How, in what way? I, I, you know, we left when, when the incident happened, but, you know, I can only speculate what I heard afterwards. Um, it was just like someone sitting in, like a gang of people sitting on one person. So did you have to be careful on the mic, depending where you were, oh, not listen, to offend listen, certain listen, people listen, if you were on a certain I, I, sort I of road? I remember once we was in Leicester and there was um, a formation dart. And we were there yet again, the internati were there with Groove, Groove, what's going on? Was it coming off? I think it was coming off. And these Birmingham and Frost was there, Jumpy Jack Frost was there. And we were going downstairs and these Manchester men go, look, I got your back, you know what I mean? Took out, took out the nine, whether it's a nine or whether it's a four or five, I don't know, but he showed it. Don't worry, he was there. A gun. Yeah, and they were saying some. I don't care. I don't. I don't care what I want tonight. Me want to hear Mickey Finn. Me want to hear Beers Man. I mean, me want anybody else in the dance. He was just. He was just, he was just saying who he wanted to hear that night, and that's it. It's all about Mickey Finn because Mickey Finn was. He was the king of the north. People loved him. Oh, put, if Mickey Finn was in the place, it was all about Mickey Finn to, for the northern lot. Mickey Pussy Clark Finn. Excuse my French. Um. Yeah, so it was it was going up north. There's always something. You're always like, "Damn, we're going up north." <laughs> I'm cool. because <laughs> like I'm switching character. I'm How do the, you feel when you've seen a guy, a guy pulling out a gun in a rave? To me, it, it, it is what it is. Is it? To and me, because it isn't to most people who listen to this podcast. Like I'll, a, I'll, but, I'll tell but, you that but now. But like, like I said before, I, this is when it gets more a bit, a bit kind of like um, different with me. Um, why I suffer with things with now, I, my character switches very quickly. My personality from Flux to Carl to Rodney. 
So I'm used to seeing what I'm seeing anyway. Who's Rodney? I mean, what's Flux? Flux is the MC, the performer. Carl is you. Uh, what's Rodney? Is it Rodney the, Rodney's the, the, the man that don't get fucked? Yeah, I don't, no a, I don't give no... I don't take no shit. I don't care. I'm arrogant. Um, I, you know, I'm not noxious. <laughs> I'm everything... What, what, what I'm supposed to be... What a street person is. Yeah. Carl is a refined, thoughtful, the thought process who I believe you're talking to now and it's there is um a knock on effect. Um it's not it's not hidden facts. I am I am diagnosed bipolar with personality disorder. And I guess through the, my lifestyle maybe that's got partly to do with things. Okay. Why? So mental health is a big massive thing in, in, in my story. But um I've dealt with my bipolar being diagnosed in 2010 with bipolar disorder to now I've learned to deal with things. Okay. You were very badly behaved at times when you were younger. Is the underground music scene, particularly like jungle drum and bass at that period, at that point, one of the few jobs that you could have done where your sort of criminality was fine? (laughs) (laughs) I guess. (laughs) Did Did anyone ever say mate? And we're going to come on to the drug dealing in a bit and some of the serious stuff that happened in that level. We'll do that in, in part two. But did any of your artists, your fellow artists, go, Flux, mate, you, you've got to fucking behave yourself because the way you're behaving here is not really in keeping with this vibe? All the time. <laughs> uh, I, I, I can remember now Groove shaking his head at me. I, I think he wanted the best for me groove in a lot of ways without being vocal but I just think he just saw the, a down spiral with me which well I think he not, he's, he's not listening right. he's not receptive for what how serious he is and funny he is as a person but as serious we think you're not this is something we shouldn't take lightly and if you're not listening then so be it and I think there's that there's my lot. There's other peers looking at me. But you don't listen. You didn't listen. You didn't listen. There's the moving shadow fraternity. <laughs> like, God, dancing us on tour flux again. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll, I mean, you just, it sounds like you just didn't listen to them. And we'll come on to those down periods in, in episode two. Yeah. But just to wrap up episode one, of your raving and emceeing in the 90s, what was your top moment and why? Let's end on a high. There's so many, honestly, yeah. You've got to understand that I've been to around the world. I've been to Australia, Japan, Hong Kong, Taiwan, America, Canada, countless times. Countless times, I mean, each one of these countries. And I guess I'm going to, st- I'm going to keep it with a fraternity because I'm really relevant to them now. Doing tours with any of the moving shadow artists to where we went to. And I'm gonna stick it to RRP Brad, the foul play. Not my saying got no love for my boys, too bad mice, but you know, when we went to Japan, foul play. Um we're doing our we we're, we're doing our thing. We we kicked ass. And to have the Japanese people you know have our hands and to get standing ovation for about ten minutes, literally. Wow. They wouldn't move. Just kept clapping, kept clapping, and it brought a tear to my eye. 
to know that we done our thing properly. And the Japanese are very dope to our people. They know when someone's come over and done something properly, they let you know. And they let us know that you gave us something we were looking for in Rave. Which uh, Carl, the attention seeker, probably yeah. enjoyed very, very much. Well, this was it, and I was eating it out, yeah. Uh, well, there you go. Um, you've heard MC Flux there talking to Raw the Night's Rave podcast about his upbringing, his gang violence, and how he got into raving and becoming uh, an MC for moving shadow, playing all the top dances. Uh, in part two, we're going to explore how he became one of the South Coast main drug dealers. Uh, pretty much lost everything before turning over a new leaf and finding his current happiness. It's going to be incredible. Don't miss it. Well, that's it from another episode of Raw. We hope you've enjoyed listening to it as much as we enjoyed making it. We're now an all-video platform, so if you're listening on audio, please do check out our YouTube page for this episode filmed, plus loads more besides. And you can also find us on Facebook, Insta and Twitter. Just search for Raw, the 90s rave podcast. Plus, if you can spare just a few quid to help us continue making more great 90s rave content and hopefully keeping a smile on your face at a difficult time, you can do so at gofundme.com forward slash the 90s rave podcast all donations will be plowed back into the podcast including expenses to get around the country interviewing some of your rave favorites and also improving our equipment so now it's time to give a big shout out to all of our significant donors and great friends i want to give a shout out to chad o'carroll who knew the 90s rave scene was big in north korea a big up to you mate uh, shout out to wayne clark who uh, understands how important donations from you guys are to improving our kit and we keep making this a banging podcast. And also a big shout out to Malcolm Payne, an ongoing donor, one of our biggest and best donors uh, that we've got. Shout out to you, mate, over there in the United States of America, keeping that 90s rave flame alive over there in the US of A.